Let's get to it. Letter 24. Letter 24 is on the topic of spiritual arrogance. Spiritual arrogance. Someone's very young in the faith. Screwtape thinks maybe one way we can trip him up is to get him to engage in pride. Well, now I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm not like these other losers, right? Get him to be proud of that Christianity. To set up this first paragraph of the letter, I thought it would be helpful to begin with a question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but is anyone like me, did anyone grow up, two questions really, did you grow up in a Christian home? In other words, you've been coming to church for longer than you can remember. And if you're like me, did you profess faith at a young age? So anybody who grew up in church and was maybe saved at a fairly young age, if that describes any of you, or if you can imagine that, this will help you as you get your brain around this first paragraph. If that's you, then do you, then the follow-up question is, do you remember when, I guess I, I could say if, if it's happened, but I'm pretty sure I can, I'm safe to say when, do you remember when, at what season in life, were you confronted with the fact that though your faith was real, it was heretofore really untested. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, the point where you're like, never forced to ask, are you a Christian by confession and conviction? Or are you a Christian because like that's what your parents were and that's what you grew up in? And In other words, you may have been truly saved. I'm not talking about somebody who just grew up in church and never questioned it. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you were truly saved, but you were never really forced to wrestle with the fact that, like, am I saved because, like, like this is my faith? This is real. Like, when did you own it, I guess is maybe a, a way to say it. When was it tested? For me, I, I, I guess I would have to say it was in college when I had professors who were not believers. But watch this. They were really smart and kind people. I was like, what? Maybe all my life I had just naively assumed that if a person was not a Christian, they must either not know the plan of salvation or be so hard-hearted and wicked that their wickedness would show through everything they did. And lo and behold, it was like, nope, these people are well aware of the gospel and they're very kind and very thoughtful people. They just don't believe. And I thought, oh, what about me? Do I really believe this stuff or not? So you see how, if a Christian is never brought to that point, now it could just be that's kind of a, a, a naive innocence, but you could see how if a Christian's never made aware of this point, it could lead to pride and arrogance. You could just sort of assume that like, well, if you're not a Christian, obviously there's something defective or, or you know, you, you must be ridiculous or, or you must be, you know, uh, totally evil and wicked and we can see that e evil in the way you treat others. Well, so in this first paragraph, that's the situation he's saying. The patient's girlfriend is kind of like that. She grew up in church, and she grew up around really smart, thoughtful Christians. And he's thinking, so we may be able to use that. Apparently, the guy has joined, the patient has joined like the girlfriend's Sunday school class. He started going to church with her and has joined like her small group Bible study or whatever. The, 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 her friend group, I don't know, her small group, whatever. He is meeting her church friends, and they're really mature Christians and really, like, thoughtful Christians. So let, let, let's see how Wormwood wants to, to use this. Uh, excuse me, how Screwtape wants to use this. My dear Wormwood, well, I've been in correspondence with Slum Trumpet, who's in charge of your patient's young woman. In, in other words, the girlfriend. Uh, her tempter is named Slum Trumpet. And begin to see the chink in her armor. 
It's not much. It's an unobtrusive, that means it doesn't get in the way. It's little. It's an unobtrusive little vice, which she shares with nearly all women who've grown up in an intelligent circle, united by a clearly defined belief. And it consists in a quite untroubled assumption that the outsiders who do not share this belief are really too stupid and ridiculous. The males who habitually meet these outsiders do not feel that way. Their confidence, if they're confident, is of a different kind. Hers, which she, which she supposes to be due to faith, is in reality largely due to the mere color she has taken from her surroundings. What he's saying is pretty simple. By the way, to modern ears, Screwtape's comment is like legit chauvinistic. She's saying, well, you know, these women, they don't, they don't get out to see the world, and so they're so insulated. The men who've seen the world, they obviously have a different kind of confidence in their faith. Uh, set aside the, the, the chauvinism baked into Screwtape's comment, uh, if you can, but don't miss the larger point. What Screwtape is saying is, like those of you who grew up in the church, especially if you were surrounded by mature, intelligent Christians, you grew up with all this confidence that you had a true understanding of God, but was that confidence ever tested? Was the confidence you had because you had this faith or just because it had simply, it was the color you had taken from your surroundings? That's what he's getting at. Does that make sense? What's, what, what's really to this faith? Has it ever been questioned? Now, he doesn't think that the girlfriend is going to lead to a lot, of, a lot of pride. He doesn't think the girlfriend's going to get into a lot of spiritual pride. He says, it is not, in fact, very different from the conviction she would have felt at the age of 10 that the kind of fish knives used in her father's house were the proper or normal or real kind, while those of neighboring families were not real fish knives at all. Uh, we don't use fish knives. Well, you may, but in cutlery, we don't use, I don't use a lot of fish knives. Uh, you know, Jackie, when you serve, uh, you know, fancy fish meals on our silver platter night, uh, but, you know, but a modern-day illustration I thought of was imagine like a 10-year-old little boy who goes over to his friend's house to spend the night, and for dinner, his friend's mom serves meatloaf, and the kid says, this isn't meatloaf. Why? Because meatloaf is only defined as the way my mama makes meatloaf, right? That is literally the definition of meatloaf. So whatever you're calling this, you call it whatever you want. But this isn't meatloaf, because meatloaf is what, what mama makes. Yeah, right. Is the boy uh, being prideful? You'd say, well, no, not really. No, he's not being prideful. He's just innocent. He's naive. I actually remember, I don't remember a ton from my childhood. My sisters make fun of me because they can remember stuff. They're like, remember when we were two? And we were, I'm like, what? No. But I'm like, my, my earliest memory was about, you know, 16. And like, uh, but I do remember from my childhood, like my very first sleepover. And I was... Uh, I had to have been young enough where I, I couldn't read, so I'm wondering, like, I'm questioning, like, the responsibility of my parents to, like, let me sleep over, but I remember I was with my friend, my friend Chris, and our dads worked together. That's, that probably explained it. They were probably awesome. Where I, anyway, and uh, in my house, dad always ate the same kind of cereal. Uh, I know it today as life cereal, but all we knew it as was daddy's kind. There was Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios, daddy's kind, and kicks. And, uh, and so that's it. Nobody ever like called it anything but daddy's kind. That's literally all the Richter family had ever, had ever heard it called. And so I go to Chris's house to spend the night and for breakfast, he's like, what do you want for breakfast? He had all these cereals. I was like, oh man, you got all these cereals that mom won't let us have. Sugar Smacks and Frosted Flakes and Lucky Charms and daddy's kind and like all these things. And he's like, and what? And I was like, hey, daddy's kind. And he's like, this is called life. I'm like, Poof. I grab the box, I point to the words, and I go, Daddy's kind. 
okay? Um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm being like prideful in that moment. You would say you're just ignorant, right? You're, you're sort of naive that like, well, that's the scenario he thinks for the girlfriend. Look at what he says. The element of ignorance and naivete in all this is so large and the element of spiritual pride so small, it gives us little hope of the girl herself. But have you thought of how it can be made to influence your own patient? The spiritual pride in the girlfriend's low. But let's get the patient to assume that non-Christians are somehow stupid and ridiculous. That would be pride. He explains the reasoning. It's always the novice who exaggerates. Do you understand that sentence? He illustrates. The man who has risen in society is over-refined. The young scholar, the young scholar is pedantic. Do you understand his illustrations? It's always great when Lewis says something, it's unclear, and his illustrations are like equally unclear. You're like, oh, thanks, thanks for clearing that up. <clears throat> Only the novice exaggerates. What he's saying is old money, okay? Old money just walks into the dinner party, has a great time. New money, the one who just got into high society, is the one who's like, now the um, dinner fork must be on the left side of the fish knife and the whatever. Because they're like, they're brand new to this. The, uh, the young scholar and the old scholar. If I'm having a discussion in seminary with the old scholar and I call him Augustine this and Augustine that, the guy just talks to me, right? If I'm talking to the brand new PhD, they stop me. Uh-uh. It's... Augustine. Pedantic, overly concerned about uh, minor uh, corrections in, uh, in, in academic matters, right? Um, so you, you're dealing here with a, with a rookie. Sometimes when I uh, got to preach at college events from time to time, it was always fun when the military academy guys would show up at the college events. And uh, several told me that it was like, um, you know, there is a pecking order in the academies and stuff. And they were, I was like, I guess the, the seniors are probably hardest on the freshman cadets. And they were like, no, 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 no. The sophomores are always the hardest on the freshmen. Why? Because they've just been through it. <laughs> and they were ready. You know what I mean? It's, it's the young, the, the novice who exaggerates. That's what he's talking about. In this new circle, your patient is a novice. So how do we tempt this brand new Christian? Well, he is there daily meeting Christian life of a quality he never before imagined and seeing it all through an enchanted glass because he's in love. He's anxious. Indeed, the enemy commands him. This is a good kind of anxiety, as in he, he, he is excited about imitating this quality. So, so, so he's, he, he's desirous to imitate a kind of really mature Christianity, and that's what God wants him to do. But Screwtape says, yeah, but let's get him to imitate also this vice of the girlfriend, which is little in her, but maybe can become a big vice in him. Or as he puts it, can you get him to imitate this defect in his mistress and to exaggerate it until what is venial, that word means like a lesser sin as opposed to a mortal sin, minor, in her becomes in him the strongest and most beautiful of the vices, spiritual pride. Make him think he deserves to be among this group of mature Christians. And make, besides, he's so in love, make, it'll make him biased toward, you know, everything. He writes, the conditions seem ideally favorable. The new circle in which he finds himself is one of which he is tempted to be proud for many reasons other than its Christianity. It's, it is better educated, more intelligent, more agreeable society than he has yet encountered. He is also under some degree of illusion as to his own place in it. Under the influence of, quote, love, he may still think of himself unworthy of the girl, but he's rapidly ceasing to think himself unworthy of the other. He has no notion 
how much in him is forgiven because they are charitable and made the best of because he's now one of the family. Now that's, that's worth stopping and considering. That kind of reminds me of the passage in the Sermon on the Mount from Sunday. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and you don't see the log in your own eye? It is that way, isn't it? We tend to make a big deal about the sins of others. We tend to minimize our own sins. You know, isn't it easy? The guy has no notion of how much they're bending over backwards to show grace to him. Can I just point that out? It is so easy to see how you're expressing grace to others. It is so difficult. It's shocking to even bring it up. How much right now the people around you are showing grace to you. Like, eventually, have you ever had this happen? Coworker, friend, whatever. I'm showing so much grace to them. I'm constantly picking up their slack. And you know what? I don't complain about it. I don't ever talk about it. I just do it, and I am bending over backwards. And finally, the day comes where it's so bad, you have to confront them. And when you confront them, you instead of them saying, sorry, or yeah, so what? What are you going to do about it? They say the one thing you never expect completes you, com catches you completely off guard. They say to you, oh, it's so funny. I was about to come to you with how much I've been covering for you. <laughs> you never see that coming. And it throws you completely off because it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How much grace you've been trying to show me? I've been, you think I need grace? No, no, you need grace. It's it is always impossible to see how much people overlook in you. It's, it's it, one of the most difficult of human relationships is when one person feels like they are bending over backward for the other and they can't understand why this person's being so upset. Can't you see all I'm doing? And the other person feels the exact same way. That is... Uh, kerosene on a flame for a human relationship. I am bending over backwards. Why can't you meet me halfway? Can't you see I'm bending over backwards for you? See? Because it's very difficult to see how people might feel that they have to show you a lot of grace. Well, back to screw tape. How much of the devil's traps come back over and over, by the way, to humility and self-awareness? That's why Romans 12, the Bible says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. <laughs> Just think of yourself with sober judgment. Self-awareness. Well, he does not dream, back to the screw tape, he does not dream how much of his conversation, how many of his opinions are recognized by them all as mere echoes of their own. Still, in other words, he's not even having original thoughts. He's just parroting back what they say. Still less does he suspect how much of the delight he takes in these people is due to the erotic enchantment. Now, erotic here doesn't so much mean sexual, but... He's defining it as romantic love, eros, as opposed to phileo or agape. He's talking about his, he's got a girlfriend, which the girl for him spreads over all her surroundings. He thinks that he likes their talk and way of life because of some congruity between their spiritual state and his. When in fact, they are so far beyond him that if he were not in love, he'd be merely puzzled and repelled by much of what he now accepts. He is like a dog which should imagine it understood firearms because its hunting instinct and love for its master enable it to enjoy a day's shooting. <laughs> it's a simple analogy. In other words, the young man is just a lovesick puppy dog infatuated by all this new Christianity largely because of his romantic attraction for his new girlfriend. And so he's got all these rushes of emotion which he says are just spirituality. But in fact, it could just be that he's head over heels in love. Now this next paragraph, I'll read slowly. 
But watch how the demons, step by step, inch by inch, what are they trying to do? If you, it, it's a complicated um, paragraph because Screwtape is about to show you like, like moves in chess. He's going to make one move, then another move. But if you ever get lost, just remember his checkmate, his ultimate goal is to get this guy to have pride. Get this guy to have spiritual arrogance and pride looking down on those that are not Christians. Here are the chess moves. Here's your chance. While the enemy, by means of sexual love and of some very agreeable people far advanced in his service, in other words, because he's in love with his girlfriend and because he is surrounded by these mature Christians, is drawing this young barbarian up to levels he could never otherwise have reached, you must make him feel that he is finding his own level. Yes. <laughs> that these people are his sort. And that coming among them, he has come home. Step one. Make him think, yeah, yeah, I... I deserve to be among these people. Yes, I'm glad I've earned the right to become a Christian. You see how that pride's creeping in? Here's what happens next. When he turns from them to other society, he will find it dull. Partly because almost any society within his reach is, in fact, much less entertaining, but still more because he'll miss the enchantment of the young woman. Teach him to mistake this contrast between the circle that delights and the circle that bores him for the contrast between Christians and unbelievers. So in other words, just make the fact that I enjoy my time with these Christians. I, yeah, I, 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 I like that better. Make, make him think that that's the difference between Christians and unbelievers. He must be made to feel, he better not put it into words, quote, how different we Christians are. And by we Christians, he must really but unknowingly mean my set, uh, my clique. And by my group, my clique, he must mean not the people who in their charity and humility have accepted me, but the people with whom I associate by right. Again, the, uh, there's a, it's a difficult passage, but again, his checkmate is, is spiritual pride. Get, get the guy to think of Christianity as like a country club that he has earned a right to join. And because it's already educated and entertaining, uh, never let him remember that Christianity is, of course, not a country club. It is a rescue mission for the lost and broken. And in this case, it takes great humility for the group to even put up with him. He gives him one last bit of advice. He says it's not going to be easy because you want to produce spiritual pride, but you've got to push with just amount, the right amount of temptation. Push too hard and it will collapse because how can anyone be proud of being rescued, right? If you stop and think about what Christianity is, how could you be proud of that? But let him think only of church as a country club and leave Christianity out altogether, and now you'll just see he's, he's vain. Vanity is not as evil as spiritual pride. Here's how Screwtape words all that. Success here depends on confusing him. If you try to make him explicitly and professedly proud of being a Christian, you'll probably fail. The enemy's warnings are too well known. If, on the other hand, you let the idea of, quote, we Christians drop out altogether and merely make him complacent about his set, you'll produce not true spiritual pride, but mere social vanity, which by comparison is a trumpery, puny little sin. So what do you do? Always keep in the back of his mind self-congratulation. Uh, think of it this way. Screwtape's goal is for every Christian, deep in the back of your mind. You would never say it out loud. You would never say it out loud. But in the back of your mind, Screwtape wants to tempt every Christian to think deep in the back of their mind. You know, God sure is lucky to have a guy like me on his team. I would never say that out loud. But I, I think I've earned a pretty good, uh, pretty good amount of credit in the righteousness department. You know, just like a blue chip athlete on signing day. You see these signing days where they got the hats of where they're going to go to college? You know, 
Lots of different options. Team Satan made a good play. Secular humanists made a good play. The same team, really. And, uh, and, and here, I, I'm taking my talents to God Beach. Like, I, I want everybody to know I'm for Team God, and congratulations. And God, God's pretty lucky to have me, right? Deep in the back of our minds, that's what Satan wants us to have, a kind of self-congratulation. And what will happen is, we'll begin to look down at all these other, we'll, we'll think of them as, as ridiculous or, or silly or stupid non-believers who must not be able to earn their way in like I have. Mm. Here's how screw tape words it. What you want is to keep a sly self-congratulation mixing with all his thoughts and never allow him to raise the question, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? Why should he never raise that question? Because if a Christian for five minutes ever stops and ponders that question, what, wait, what, what am I congratulating myself about? Uh, the answer obviously would lead us right back to humility. I mean, can you imagine? What would a Christian have to brag about? What does it fundamentally mean to be a Christian? It means you're one of the rescued ones. You're one of the lost sheep that your good shepherd came and found and rescued. You tell me, how ridiculous, how silly would it be if you saw someone bragging and boasting on one of those uh, news broadcasts the Weather Channel does? You know the ones. A hurricane has come through. 50 million warnings came through. Everybody fled the city. The evacuation orders were given. Everybody left. And somebody heard all the warnings and chose to stay. When the river waters came up, it washed them away. They were drowned, and a brave Coast Guard rescue operation started. The brave Coast Guard rescuer dives in, saves the person. They're huddled in the blanket, and Jim Cantore, whoever, is interviewing him, saying, you know, tell us all about it. Can you imagine if a guy grabs the mic and like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you about it. I heard the warnings, but chose to stay, chose to stay. Heard multiple warnings, chose to stay. Was told not to go to the shore, went to the shore. And all because of me, this is possible. I was drowning in the shore, and I don't want to say hero, but... You'd be so confused by that. You'd be like, well, what are you talking about? You're, well, you're not the hero at all. In fact, that's not why they talk that way. What they say is, thank goodness for the hero. And they talk about their rescuer. For a Christian to boast is no different than someone who's been rescued bragging about what a great job they did drowning. So for a Christian, and this is what Paul says, if you want to hear me boast, I'm going to boast about Jesus. I'm going to boast about my rescuer. Because it doesn't make any sense. A Christian, what, what does a Christian have to brag about? Other than, yeah, I got really lost. Yep. I really rebelled. <laughs> There's nothing that we have that's not been a gift. So, the idea, of, uh, so, he, so he concludes, it, it, don't ever let somebody actually stop and ask, what precisely am I congratulating myself about? If Screwtape says, don't ever let a Christian ask that, then Lewis is obviously saying, we should totally ask ourselves that, right? That is a question we should ask ourselves. What precisely does a Christian have to congratulate themselves about? That will bring us back to a proper understanding. Now, the idea of belonging, he says, as Screwtape finishes the letter, the idea of belonging to an inner ring. Now, Lewis, in other writings, talks a lot about this inner ring and the desire to be on the inside of the inner ring. It's one of the most profound and powerful emotions that a human being can feel. In uh, one of the early letters, I talked about being left out of the cool kid's table, even as an adult. That's where it was talked about. If you read Lewis's biography, Surprised by Joy, I think you see some of these themes. Even, you know, he was always sent off to these boarding schools, and they were always 
Lewis was always bullied. I think there was something about uh, this that was particularly important for him. But uh, he's right. The idea of belonging to an inner ring, of being in on a secret, is very sweet to him. Play on that nerve. Teach him, using the influence of this girl when she is silly, is to adopt an air of amusement at the things the unbelievers say. Some theories which he may meet in modern Christian circles may here prove useful. Theories, I mean, that place the hope of society in some inner ring of clerks, some trained minority of theocrats. It's no affair of yours whether those theories are true or false. The great thing is to make Christianity a mystery religion in which he feels himself one of the initiates. You see how this can become spiritual pride, right? I'm on the inner ring. Lucky me. Uh, too bad for all of you who've been left out of God's love and Christianity. That's spiritual pride. So, one last warning, and it's great. Remember, there's a war going on, right? 1941, we're in the middle of War II, and this is... The, like, if, if you're not careful, you read Screwtape Letters, and you even forget there's a war. Why? Lewis is right, because for the demons, they don't really care. So, so, so watch what he tells Wormwood. Pray do not fill your letters with rubbish about this European war. Its final issue is, no doubt, important, but that's a matter for the high command. I am not in the least interested in knowing how many people in England have been killed by bombs. In what state of mind they died, I can learn from the office at this end. That they were going to die sometime, I already knew. Please keep your mind on your work, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. We have seen this many, many times, but it is a good reminder. War would be a huge deal for us because it is a huge circumstance. From the enemy's perspective, meh, all he cares about is how to use a war or a time of peace or an election or anything to draw people away from God. From the demon's perspective, all humans die. War may speed that up, but it changes nothing. Our goal is to draw them away from God. And that's a theme we've seen over and over in the Screwtape Letters, that uh, all the, the circumstances and vicissitudes of life are just the raw material. Either God's going to use it for good, or the enemy's going to try to use it to draw us away from God. And that's letter 24. Spiritual arrogance, spiritual pride. We'll try to get through letter 25. And then, and then you know, time for questions. <laughs> letter 25 is the theme. It's this. Letter 25 is one of my faves. I know I say that about lots of letters. The same old thing. Same old thing. Letter 25 is all about the same old thing. <clears throat> In this letter, Screwtape's going to talk about one of the great tricks the enemy used is to make the humans horrified at the thought of the same old thing. Even when I say this, the same old thing. Uh, do you tend to think of this as a positive thing or a negative thing? Let me ask you this way. If a uh, couple has been married the first year, the wife has decided that she wants to uh, bless the family because God's made her a really good cook, and she cooks food, and she presents the food to the husband, and he says this phrase. What happens next? Happy things? Sad things. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, see me after. We'll talk. Yeah. Now, what, but, but like, what if you really like the same old... Well, we'll talk about it. But generally speaking, this is obviously, this is a negative thing. Oh, same old thing. So, he starts by pointing out the problem. These Christians in his girlfriend's Sunday school class, they don't, first of all, there's a big problem. They don't seem to care about being cool Christians or being any particular brand of Christians. They're okay with just being mere Christians. And how many of you know that this is a nod 
Uh, he got the quote from uh, an old Puritan, Richard Baxter, I think. But uh, his famous book of apologetics is called Mere Christianity. The idea being, uh, he's not trying to get in the weeds on all the doctrinal denominational differences. He's just trying to say, here is mere Orthodox Christianity the best I can understand it. And this group of Christians are merely Christian. This is what, that's what he means. Let's see if we can unpack it. Screwtape writes, my dear Wormwood, the real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. Yeah, they all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. Let me just pause right there. I tell you, one of the marks of health in the, in the life of a church, more and more, is your church growing to be the kind of place where you probably would not hang out with these people except for your love of Jesus? That's actually the mark of a healthy church. Do you see why? Over time, more and more, the common denominator just becomes Jesus. Your unity is in the gospel. What that means is you've transcended the fact that they cheer for the wrong college football team. Or they don't think like I think on every issue. Or they don't vote like I vote on every issue. Or they don't see this, or they don't see that the same. So what unites us? Jesus. Jesus. And more and more and more, you start to realize, like, wait, it's Jesus that draws us together. Now, we're all going to have our individual interests, fine, but the bond is Christ. What we want, if, and so, so Satan says we don't like that. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to create little, you know, Country clubs, little societies where everybody chooses to be together because they have all these, they're socioeconomically the same, they're racially the same, they're whatever. They, they, they come, you know, they, they find the same kinds of things in life entertaining. No, no, no. So what we want is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis. So everybody who feels this way about the war joins these churches. Everybody who feels this way joins Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the new order. Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychical research. I, I don't know what that is. I didn't look it up. Christianity and vegetarianism. Christianity and spelling reform. The last one's a joke. Uh, these are people who want to change laws on how to spell words, which British people, I personally think they need. But if they, they think I need. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute, watch this, substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Do you understand? Let me explain it like this. The church has one mission, the Great Commission, to proclaim the good news, to make disciples. There will always be pressure on the local church to reposition herself as something more or different than that. Like any organization, do you know what missional drift is? Missional drift, just like a, a, a car that doesn't have good alignment, eventually drifts off one side or off the other. A church with good alignment stays on mission. Over time, if you're not careful, it will gradually drift into other things that are probably good, but not primary. See, So the church is always tempted to make secondary missions, which are all important. Of course they're important, but the secondary mission can never be overtake the primary mission, make disciples, the Great Commission, the proclamation that there is a living Lord who has died for you and your salvation. See? So here it is. Here's how to start accomplishing that wormwood. In this guy's life, get him to 
We'd love it if the whole church would get off mission, but at least get this guy's life off mission. Here's how to do it. And here it is. It's the point of the chapter. Work on their horror of the same old thing. Dun, dun, dun. The horror of the same old thing. It's a creation of the devil. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we produce in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. What's he saying? Think about it. Because of the horror of the same old thing, it has caused people to leave the faith. It's a source of heresies. Well, biblical Christianity is just the same old thing. You know, let's spice it up a little with the Book of Mormon. How about a brand new revelation? Yeah! A brand new revelation that's wild, man, with angels and prophets like Joseph Smith. Yeah, yeah, Because otherwise it's just the same old thing. Your life is boring? Let's spice it up. Let's, let's deconstruct our faith. Because the faith that we were taught in Sunday school, well, that's just the same old thing. You see what the enemy's doing? Maybe your life is boring. Why not spice it up with a new spouse? Leave your marriage vows and spice it up with a new spouse. Why? Because your marriage, you, 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 she's just the same old thing. You, 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 your friends, leave them. Get a new set of friends. You don't have to be faithful. You don't have to be faithful to some friend. You don't owe them that. They're just the same old thing. You see the demonic nature of this. Now, screw tape. What he writes next is unknowingly an incredible praise to God. Here's where I think Lewis, even Lewis, well, Lewis is not perfect. And I think every now and then, even though he tries to write like a demon, Lewis's love for God slips in. Because I don't think a demon would ever write like this much. But this, this, how can this not make a Christian smile and love God more? Look, look what he writes. The humans live in time and experience reality successively. To experience much of it, by the way, does everybody agree with that? Uh, uh, time space can't be more than one place at once. We walk through time. That's how we experience reality. So since we can't be, be everywhere at once, we have to, to experience a lot of it. Therefore, they must experience many different things. In other words, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, remember he's talked about this before, a hedonist just it, uh, uh, in other words, the goal of life is enjoyment. The goal of life is pleasure. And Screwtape more than once it says God is a hedonist. And there are several Christians, not the least of which is John Piper, who credits C.S. Lewis for turning him on to this idea, who says he's absolutely right. God is hedonistic. What does he mean? He means when you say, well, the whole point of life is enjoyment, Piper would say, and I would agree with him, you're right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were put for all eternity. You were put on this planet. And you will one day be in the new heaven, new earth because of Jesus. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. A lot of people would get, they get with that first part, but they forget that second part. God actually wants you to have fulfillment and enjoyment forever and ever. What else would you call that? They're a hedonist. And Piper says the problem is not that people say, well, you know, I'm seeking pleasure. The problem is you're seeking pleasure in all the things that won't ever fulfill you. He's saying the problem is not your search for enjoyment. It's that you've been searching for enjoyment in every dark and blind alley that's never going to get you there. So seek 
real enjoyment. Seek pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. Seek God. Anyway, he's a hedonist at heart. And he has made change pleasurable to them just as he has made eating pleasurable. I get an amen? No? Meatloaf? Daddy's kind? Cereal? Anybody? But since he does not wish them to make change any more than eating and end in itself, he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. Interesting. Just stop right there. Pause and consider. Is that true? Has God put in you? Would you agree that's true? I agree it's true. He, you have simultaneously. That means at the same time, you have right now in you, you love change and you also love permanence at the same time. Isn't that true? You have in you a love for change, and yet you also have this love for permanence. I think that's true. Well, Screwtape says, he has contrived, God has contrived to gratify both tastes together in the very world he's made by that union of change and permanence, which we call rhythm. He gives them, for example, he gives them the seasons. This is what I mean. This to me is brilliant. He gives them the seasons. Each season different. Yet every year, the same. So that spring is always felt as an abysmal onslaught of pollen. Sorry, novelty. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, so that, that's another of Screwtape's inventions. In the new heaven, new earth, there'll be no more Zyrtec, guys. No more Flonase. Just all will be prayer and praise. Where was I? I, I got distracted. He gives them the seasons, each season different, yet every year the same. So that spring is always felt as a novelty. It always is the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual year. They change from a fast to a feast, but it's the same feast as before. Guys, think about what he's saying. You have in you a love for change, but a love for permanence. So what does he do? He gives you Lent, but it's the same Lent every year. But then after Lent comes Easter. And no matter how fresh and glorious and wonderful Easter feels every Sunday, and it feels so good this Sunday, I can't wait, it's still part of the freshness and newness is tied to this immemorial theme that I've been celebrating Easter for so many years. It is amazing to me. Christmas, every year, Christmas, so fresh, so, so exciting, so wonderful every year. And yet, and yet, so it's, it has this sense of, new. wow, we're putting out the tree, we're putting out... Just take the tree, for example. We're putting out the tree for some of you. Trees. For some of you, trees and trees and trees. You know who you are, right? So you're, you're like emptying your Christmas rooms. And you're pulling it in there. And it's so excited. But that's a perfect example. Why? Christmas! And it's just July. This is glorious, right? You're so excited. You're putting it out there. But some of the ornaments you're putting on your trees have been in your family for generations. New. Permanent. Change. Permanence. It's spring, like it was last year. But it's new, but it's permanent. That's rhythm. Jack and Chuck beat. Come on, DJ Jack, DJ Jazzy Jack. Could have been us, babe. Permanent, new. Oh, it's so good. So what is Screwtape gonna do with this? How is Screwtape then going to turn into the same old thing? What does he do with everything? Guys, if you've been in this book, you know this answer. Can Screwtape, can the devil make anything evil? No. So what can he do? Since he can't create, what's his only, what's his only weapon? 
He can only take the good gifts of God and figure out how to twist them and pervert them. That's the only play in his playbook. That's why Lewis has this play played out over and over in different ways. Eating is the example I always come back to. Eating is a good gift of God. Even the pleasure of eating and the fact that God gave us taste buds to nourish ourselves instead of just some pill that would give us all our nutrients. We don't just get a pill. We get cobbler. You know what I'm saying? That's a great gift of God. Okay. So what can Satan do? Satan can take the good gift of eating and twist it and pervert it into gluttony or anorexia or an eating disorder. And now this, this, this good gift of eating, eating has now been twisted and perverted and a cause of great pain. That's what he says. So, 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 so he's going to take that permanence and newness and twist it. Here's how. Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate, say, the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony. Hey, that's my example because I, I knew it was coming. So we pick out, so, so, so just like we do with that, here's how we're going to do this. We pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into what? Into a demand for absolute novelty. What does that mean? Newness all the time. Always new. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing. This demand is entirely our workmanship. Everybody hear that? The demand for the constantly having the next newest thing is of Satan. Here's why. If we didn't do this, if we neglect our duty, men will not only be contented, but like transported by the mixed novelty of familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we've taught them better, will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which conquers succeeds hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. Any of you guys growing up, anybody grow up playing conquers with your friends? Anybody? It's a great game. Love it. Love, love a match of conquers. Conquers is uh, this uh, British game the kids play in the fall when the chestnut trees drop the chestnuts. You pick up a chestnut and you, you, you thread string through it. Your buddy gets one. And the game of Conquers, you ready, is uh, you get three swings at his chestnut with your chestnut. Whack! Or conk, right? And if yours breaks his, then uh, you win. You get, and that becomes a onesie and then twosie and whatever. And you, you win a tensie. It, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You want to know how many hours of YouTube goes by when you're watching World Conquer Championships? Uh, just asking for a friend. Um, the, uh, the point is, right, it, it, what he's saying, humans would be so totally content if Satan didn't mess us up and try to constantly tempt us with, you need the next new thing all the time. He's saying, imagine a world where humans would just walk around and be like, huh, snowflakes. We'd be like, we'd be like human Olaf's. This is great. A sunrise? Are you kidding me? A sunrise? Look at this. Look at this. Yeah, we had one yesterday. I know. And one of the most beautiful passages. Just Google it. Google G.K. Chesterton and um, like daisies. That'll probably get you there. There's this wonderful passage in his book Orthodoxy where he says, "Children delight. They exult in monotony. Why is it that a little kid doesn't need this newness all the time?" And those of you who've been around little kids, you know that. They will do the same game with you over and over and over and over until you're like, I'm ready to, I'm, can we play Conkers? Like, I, please, stop. Why? Because they never get bored over and over. Uh, why? Because they delight in monotony. And we've grown old. He says it could be that our Heavenly Father didn't make all the daisies Millions and millions of daisies just in one fell swoop. It could be that like a little child, he just never got tired of it. 
It could be that the sun doesn't rise because it's, we're turning on the sun's axis and all that. It could be that God looks at the sun and goes, do it again. Just like a little child says, do it again. Oh, do it again. God tells the sun, do it again. Because we've grown old because of sin, but our Heavenly Father is younger than we. I didn't do it justice. I didn't quote it right. You, you'll see when you read it. Oh, okay, Tom did his best. But when you read it, you tell me if you won't be moved and touched by this idea that uh, we would be so content with just we'll play hopscotch all summer, then we play conkers, then we play some winter weird curling or whatever, and then we play the spring sports, and then, yeah, it'd be great. One last thing, Screwtape brags. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for infinite or unrhythmical change kept up. You can hear him laugh. <laughs> See, we get them frustrated and always wanting the next new thing. And then because of our efforts, they're no longer happily satisfied by the same old thing. Now, you need to know, if you don't know already, that the greatest living Christian songwriter right now, in my opinion, is Andrew Peterson. If you don't know Andrew Peterson, you're welcome. If you're not into folk music, you will be. Andrew Peterson is the greatest living Christian songwriter. I know I said earlier, in my opinion, but he just is. <clears throat> if you want to Google something on your Spotify playlist or Pandora or whatever, he wrote a song in the 2000 album, Clear to Venus. And the name of the song is Song and Dance. Just type it into Spotify, listen to it later. I don't know if Andrew Peterson read this page out of Screwtape. I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I haven't had the chance to ask him if you know Andrew, ask him this. Um, uh, wait, listen, Nashville, it's possible somebody here knows him or you're watching this on YouTube. Andrew, call me. <laughs> uh, sorry, that sounded a little creepy, stalkerish. Um, this song and dance, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out he read this page when he wrote this song. And I'd just like to read you the lyrics. It, he writes it first imagining old King David. So here are the lyrics. David's on his throne at sundown. His paper and his pen are in his hand. He's waiting on his song at sundown as he gazes out across his holy land. And he thinks of old Goliath and he smiles. <laughs> he can barely keep from laughing. He says... Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And he can hear the rivers clapping. Well, they're still clapping to the same old song and dance. Well, the cadence of the sea is just as steady, and the chorus of the hills is just as strong, and the faithfulness of God is just as mighty as it was when the shepherd slew the giant with a stone. You can close your eyes and listen to the sea. You can feel the holy rhythm. Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised for the mercy he has given. Well, he's still given. It's the same old song and dance. I can hear creation sing in his praise that his love is everlasting. It's the same as it was a million years ago. I can still hear David laughing and the rivers are still clapping to the same old song, the same old song and dance. When you put it like that, you see what Screwtape has done to us. Like, he wants to take this and twist it. Like, guys, on Friday, we're going to, good Friday service. You ready? Here's what it's going to be. 
It's going to be songs and some preaching about the old rugged cross. It's going to be the same old thing as it was last Good Friday. Right. And then on Easter Sunday, it's going to be a proclamation that he is risen. It's going to be the same old thing, which when you put it like that, you see how Screwtape has perverted it and twisted it. Well, he's perverted it into an incessant demand for novelty. What's new? What's next? This demand, he says, is valuable in various ways. Screwtape then gives five reasons. Four he rattles off, and fifth gets its own treatment. I think we can do them quickly. First, in the first place, what, what can he do if he can, if he can make this incessant demand for, for constant novelty? Well, in the first place, it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. The pleasure of novelty is, by its very nature, more subject than, other, than any other to the law of diminishing returns. Those of you in the corporate world, or the, I should say, manufacturing world, or probably the investing world, you know about the law of diminishing returns. A principle stating that profits or benefits gained from something after a certain optimal point will represent a proportionally smaller gain, even if more energy, in fact, as more energy or money or whatever is invested into it. Uh, I don't understand all that. My brain doesn't work that way, but I do understand ice cream. And I can tell you the 50th bite of ice cream isn't nearly as good as the first. The first tastes like glory. 50th tastes like regret. Right? It's the first sip of coffee in the morning, isn't it? You know what I'm talking about, coffee people. Okay. TikTok. There's a law of diminishing returns. It's like, eh, that's fine, that's fine. Now I'm just a zombie scrolling. <laughs> what happens? It loses some sort of novelty. So we're looking for anything to make it fresh, and suddenly we become addicted to novelty. And watch this. The law of diminishing returns kicks in on novelty because the one thing being novelty has for it is it's new. So naturally, the newness gets worn off faster than anything, and so humans have to work harder and harder and harder to get less and less and less pleasure. Two. Continued novelty costs money, so the desire for, for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. <laughs> I hear people talk about they went to the beach like when they were kids. I'm talking about older generations. They went to the beach when they were kids. I've tried to describe that generation to my kids' trip to the beach, and it's just hilarious. I, they're just like, what? It's like they're two different planets, you know? Yeah, we loaded up the station wagon. If we were lucky, we'd throw in a live chicken because on Sunday was chicken night and we needed him to eat. Like, what? Yeah, we'd go camping and we'd throw in some. I'm describing your trip. Yeah, like, like well, you know, yeah, it was camping out. It was all, it was, we'd come home buggy and we loved it. What happened? This desire for novelty. It's got to be new. It's got to be new. You know, I think of that. Well, that, that all that newness costs money so you can get people to become greedy or unhappy with what they have. The point is never content. Three, and again, the more rapacious, that word means aggressively greedy, this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those the enemy forbids. Thus, by inflaming the horror of the same old thing, we have recently made the arts, for example, less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been. Lowbrow and highbrow artists alike being now daily drawn into fresh and still fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride sexuality and just meanness. He's right, isn't he? He's right. The desire for novelty. You know, if you go back and watch an old Western, they don't shoot him up. It's almost like innocent now, isn't it? Now an action movie has to become more and more bloody. Horror movies have to become very gory. All videos must become more and more explicit. Why? We've created a desire for novelty. 
Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable for produced fashions or vogues. Uh, I'll go through, through this quickly. I'm aware of the time. The use of fashions and thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in least danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we're trying to make endemic, uh, commonplace, happening regularly. The game is to have them all running about with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood and crowding that side of the boat which is already nearly gunwale under. Thus, we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they're all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when we're making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless, irresponsible, and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism, puritanism, and whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves and tyrants, we make liberalism the prime bogey. Whew, okay, I, I think I can do this quick. Uh, so culture swings in a pendulum. Churches are no different. I mean, by like by that church culture. Well, I'll use a simple illustration because I don't have time to explain the whole thing. I'll just use an illustration. And from the illustration, you'll be able to, I think, derive the whole point. Here's the illustration. Here's the pendulum. Let's put the pendulum going this way. And let's use only as an illustration. It's just one illustration. Let's use. Let's use legalism. Over here, and maybe you can see this. We're going to put. The opposite of legalism is antinomianism. It's a big word. It just means against the law. Antinomianism over here. This is, uh, you know, legalism. You know, you're, you're going you're gonna to go to hell if you, you know, are caught with playing cards and, you know, you went to a dance and, and drinking and smoking and, and whatever, okay? And so you're, you're, you're real legalistic about that. It's a legalistic, very works-based righteousness. That's on one side. What's the exact opposite of that problem? It's equally wrong, but what's the exact opposite? Here, you're waking up drunk in a gutter celebrating how free you are in Christ. Well, that's no good either, right? Now you just now you just completely worldly and, and off the rails that way. Everybody agree? Everybody with me so far? So the issue, what Satan wants to do is find out where the pendulum is. Find out where the pendulum is and put all the put all the horror of the same old thing again, have them push in the wrong direction. So if they're already in a real legalistic culture, have them always talk about the dangers of, any, of any, anything that's outside the bounds of legalism. See? Have them, they're pushing the wrong way. Meanwhile, if they're over here, they're already way off the rails in antinomianism. Have them always guarded against, well, we don't want to become legalists. Better not ever become a legalist. We don't want legalism. It's like, uh, no, but I think you need to come back a little. You see? Have them always warned against the opposite danger they really need to be warned against. I can tell by your faces I did not do a good job of explaining that. But sometimes it's, you got to know when to hold them and know when. Well, that's, see, that's antinomianism. We're back to poker. All right. I can explain more later. If you have questions, I can, I can unpack that a little more. The greatest triumph at all is to elevate this horror of the same old thing into a philosophy. Oh, this is huge. I know we've only got two minutes, but it's worth it. Into a philosophy so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. If I had time, I'd write that on the board. Nonsense in the intellect reinforced corruption in the world. In other words, let there be a general sentiment in culture. You tell me if you can apply this without me having to. Something is wrong just because it's old-fashioned. Who cares if it's true? It's not modern. It's outdated. It is here that the general evolutionary or historical character of modern European thought, partly our work, and I would say American, comes in so useful. See, the enemy loves platitudes, overly simplified. 
of a proposed course of action, he wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. You know, is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? If we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is, is this the way history's going? Then they'll neglect the relevant questions. Guys, I hear this on hot button issues. I've actually heard somebody say this on current cultural issues. They've asked me straight up dead serious. Tom, are you telling me, don't you want to be on the right side of history on this issue? Don't you want to be on the right side of history? To which my answer is always, I want to be on the right side of God. And when you say, I'm on the right side of history, what you mean is, don't you want to be on my side? Whether or not it's the right side of history, I, do you want to be, like, like, I want to be on the right side of God. So, so to say that you've got to affirm this or not affirm that to be on the wrong side of history, the question is, does it go against the moral laws of the universe? Is, is it true? Is it righteous? Is it prudent? The questions they do ask, of course, are unanswerable, for they, they don't know the future and what the future will be. depends very largely on just those choices which they now invoke the future to help them make. <laughs> when, in other words, when somebody says, don't you want to be on the right side of history, what they mean is, you'll be on the side I'm on, which is saying, I get to determine history, but it doesn't matter. You're going to end up uh, uh, in the decision apparently Screwtape's already made for you. As a result, while their minds are buzzing in this vacuum, we have the better chance to slip in and bend them to the action we have decided on. And great work's already been done. Once they knew that some changes were for the better, and others for the worse, and others again indifferent. We've largely removed this knowledge. For the descriptive adjective unchanged, we've substituted the emotional adjective stagnant. We've trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour. Whatever he does, whoever he is, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. And that's a good segue for Holy Week. We're going to preach the same old thing Friday, and we're going to preach the same old thing Sunday. And shh, can you hear it? Shh. If you listen, you can still hear the rivers clapping. Let's pray.